Um, all right, guys, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. We're, we're journeying through the book of Matthew, and we're going to uh, be there in, in chapter 21 today. Um, by way of introducing the topic, which is a, it's going to be a hard topic to take in. It's going to be a hard pill to swallow from Jesus. I'm just preparing you for that. But I, I, I've been having this passage in my mind as I picked up the newspaper. I'm kind of old school. I still like getting an actual, like, newspaper, you know, and so... I don't get to read it every day, but it's really fun when I am able to. But there was one article that really caught my attention just this week, because the title of the article was, Martini, of course, and a babysitter? Anyway, and then the subtitle, Fancy Joints Offer More Than Crayons to Lure Families. Check this out. Young diners who arrive at Kingbird, a white tablecloth, a five-star restaurant, inside the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C., don't have to settle for a small box of crayons. No, instead, an employee whisks them away on a political scavenger hunt before the main course. They tour the hotel suite where burglars plotted the break-in of the Democratic National Committee to benefit President Richard Nixon's re-election. After scouring clues, including examining a rotary phone. Okay, that would be worth the price of admission right there. They still have those? Yeah, they found one. Anyway, you get to see a rotary phone. It's like going to the dark ages. On a re- see, hear what's listening. On a record player. <laughs> Children and, hold on, just, I'm not going to read too much more. Children and, uh, uh, we'll end the night with free ice cream sundae, reputed to have been the former president's favorite dessert. Meanwhile, the adults can enjoy Kingbird's $115 ribeye for two without distraction. Wow, there's so many things in that article that caught my attention, but... Here's the part that I wanted to kind of bring to you guys. You guys, we are living in a culture and feeding a beast in a culture where accommodation and actually teaching even from childhood that there are like no boundaries and there's, even when it comes to authority, it's a soft kind of authority. It's, it's really a culture-wide phenomenon. Here's what I mean. It used to be like when I was growing up, and I'm not trying to be just old man. Well, yeah, I guess I am just being old man, but excuse me, I guess, for a moment. But when I was growing up, I just knew that there were places where adults went, and that was their place and their time. And I was told, no, you can't go there. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, no, mom and dad are going out. You're actually staying home. That's not for you. The answer, no. Or, yeah, we're going to include you, but no, we're not making this night about you. You're going to actually learn to sit in an adult environment with politeness and respect and quietness because this is an adult place. And the answer, no, it's not about you. Culturally, what we're doing is creating, I believe, soft authority. Authority that can always kind of be pushed, manipulated, finagled a little bit, a soft authority. And I I think it's certainly true of my generation all around, but I think we're actually feeding that beast more and more all the time. I bring that up because, guys, um, what we're going to encounter in the Bible today is actually Jesus in a raw display of pure authority. And I think that we're really just culturally sensitized to resist displays of authority. We, by nature, don't like it when somebody's going to say, 
no, don't do that, or you go do that, right? On, on either side of that, either telling us we can't do something we want to do, or we have to do something we really don't want to do. I, I'm just telling you, I think that these words, if we're going to listen rightly to Jesus, he's going to be offensive to us today. And so I'm preparing you to be offended by Jesus, which is the whole point, guys, as we open the word together, the whole point of coming to know Jesus is that he is going to turn everything upside down. At least that's what it's going to feel like. That's so different than the way I think. That's so different than the way I act. What he's actually doing, guys, is turning things right side up for us. He, he's actually ordering us rightly, but it's not the way we think. It's not the way we live. It's not the way we act. So he's going to change our minds about who God is. We've got really crazy ideas about God. He's going to be like, no, don't think that way. Here's God. He's going to do that with you and me. I think I'm this. And he's going to say, actually, no, here's a mirror. You're actually this. He's going to do that as he teaches us about the world system, about relationships. And he's going to do that this morning, I think, on how we think about authority, especially not just authority in general, God's authority. And I think it's going to be a really important lesson for us. We will land in, in Matthew 21. To set it up, I was actually also reading a newspaper, and I was reading another part of my Bible uh, this, this week, and I landed in Isaiah 5. I'm going to have it on the screens, or you can follow along. The, the picture that Isaiah paints in Isaiah 5 is actually a beautiful backdrop to what Jesus is going to do for us in Matthew 21. So I want to start in Isaiah 5. Listen to this beautiful allegory, kind of analogy that Isaiah paints for us. Isaiah 5, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it. He even dug out a wine press there. And he expected it to yield good grapes. But it yielded worthless grapes. So now residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah Please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a good yield of grapes, a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge, and it, it'll get consumed. I'm going to tear down its wall, and it, it will just get trampled. I'll make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will just grow up. I'll also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it, for the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel. So the, here's the analogy. He's going to say, here's what I'm really talking about. The vineyard, Israel. The men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice. He saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but he heard cries of despair. Like it just didn't produce what he expected it to, what he planted it for, right? So just put yourself, this is, this is really a simple story, kind of a parable from the Old Testament to help explain. If that were you, what would you do? Like, you decide to plant a garden, so you do the raised bed, because you heard those are the best, right? So you get the timbers, and you work it, and then you bring in the best soil, because you just know your soil isn't the best, so you're going to haul in even the best soil, and you're going to till it up, and you're going to put a big fence around it because you don't want the deer, the Iowa City deer, you know, to get in there. And you're going you're gonna to find the finest seed that are 
for this zone and everything. You're going to just go to town and year one, nothing but weeds grow up. And you're just like, what? No. Or maybe some plants do grow up, but they don't produce anything. So you're like, well, I'll try it again. You till it up, you're more, you know, whatever. And after a while, you know what you say? This is worthless, right? Why go to all this work if I'm never going to get one tomato? I'm not going to get one cucumber. I'm not, forget it. I'll just let my kids play there. Plant grass, get rid of it, right? That's, that's the analogy. It's mine. I can do whatever I want with it. I gave it a good run, gave it a good all, and it just did nothing for me. So I own it. I'm going to take the fence down. Okay, I want us to go to Matthew 21 because that analogy, that story is going to be the backdrop for everything that we're going to read as we get now to Matthew uh, chapter 21. So, Matthew 21, here's what's going to happen to you guys. We're skipping the first part of 21 because I actually taught that back uh, on Palm Sunday. So, we're going to skip and go to verse 18, okay? So, he's just had the triumphal entry and all that, so now we're in verse 18, Matthew 21, 18. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he was hungry. So seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And at once the fig tree withered. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed and they said, how did the fig tree wither so quickly? And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it will be done. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. All right. Let's start off. We're going to go a little bit further, but I want to take this a step at a time. This whole thing with a fig tree. Okay. I'm kind of a tree guy. I wish I knew even more about trees. I don't know a ton, but what I do know, I love. I'm fascinated by trees. So I did a little research on fig trees for this. I found this a pretty intriguing little um, study. Here's, here's what's interesting about fig trees is they actually start bearing fruit often even before they leaf out. It's a really unique tree in this way. And in fact, they are so productive as trees that they will sometimes even grow fruit twice a year. But often, if there are still even no leaves at all, you'll find an, a virtually barren fig tree, no leaves on it. But fruit beginning, and then the leaves either come at the same time or even after sometimes the fruit. So, all that to say, if you see a fig tree just loaded with leaves, the assumption is, oh, certainly there's going to be fruit because this thing often precedes the fruit before the leaves even. So, man, if there's a bunch of leaves, I'm just assuming underneath all those leaves, there's fruit. And there wasn't. This, this tree had a promise of fruit, a showing of fruit. That's what he's trying to say. But it was deceptive. It was empty, right? The only reason you plant a fig tree is to get the figs, right? If you have a fruit tree, you guys know what this is like. Unless you like the fruit, you don't want a fruit tree because they just drop everything and it's messy, right? The only reason to have a productive tree is because you like what it's producing. So if it doesn't produce what you want it to, you're like, get rid of it, right? And so this tree had a promise of life. But it was empty. Now, here's what I, I was puzzled with. I've got question marks in my margin because of this. What's the connection then with prayer? Right? He makes this immediate connection with, and if you pray, right? So what's the connection between, well, I want you to think about, I just mentioned that we, 
we're skipping the first part of the chapter because I taught it a few weeks ago. Where has he just come from when we enter the scene in verse 18? Where has he just come from in chapter 21? The temple, right? And what happened in the temple? When he got close to the temple, he heard, oh, there's a bunch of activity going on and there's loudness. And you'd think, man, what an awesome place of worship. That thing must be loaded with worshipers and prayers because that's what happened when he got inside the temple. He found out that loud sound, that wasn't worshipers. The people buying and selling and trading and bilking people and cheating people. And what's Jesus do? Starts turning over tables. And no, this is to be a house of what? Prayer. This is to be a house of prayer. You made it a den of thieves. What's going on here, right? And so here's what he's saying. Oh, there's a lot of show going on inside those walls. That temple's got a lot of sound, a lot of activity. It's empty. I wanted that to be a house of prayer. I'm looking for worshipers. When I come to inspect the fruit, when I come to see what this place ought to be doing and producing, it's supposed to be producing worship and prayer and instead just nastiness, weeds, you know what I mean? And so here's what's crazy. They, they are so fascinated with this temple, guys. In fact, do this. Flip over to chapter 24 just for a second. We're going to get to it in just a couple of weeks. But in chapter 24, here's what goes on, the very first couple of verses. As Jesus left, he was going out of the temple, and his disciples came up and called his attention to its buildings, like as if you haven't seen it before, right? Hey, check this out, Jesus. Look at these buildings. Look at this temple. Look at this magnificent house of worship we've built. And he replied to them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. See, I, I don't like what's going on in there. I'm going to get rid of it. The way this fig tree, I just said, done. That's what's going to happen. And that is indeed what happened to the temple. So I actually brought a couple pictures. Um, I want you to see, let's throw the first picture up there. So this is actually, there is no temple anymore in 70 AD, not long after the time of Jesus. Rome came in and absolutely destroyed the temple. There was not one stone left on another. And in fact, some of the stones were thrown, were hurled down over just the retaining wall. And some of those stones were actually just unearthed within the last few years. Some of the excavators found some of the stones that not only were they tearing the place down, burning it, they wanted no trace of it. They would take these massive stones and drag them and hurl them over the side of the thing. Go, go to the next one. So this is some of those. Can you imagine the massive stones, how intentional you'd have to be? This isn't like grabbing rocks and hucking them over the wall, right? This is like, I want to make a statement that I'm done with this place, shoving these things off this massive wall. Okay, go to the next one. This is what many uh, call the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. You've maybe seen pictures of, of this experience. This wall is all that is really left of that first temple grounds. But it's not the temple itself. It's the closest retaining wall to the, to the site on top of which the temple was built. And that's as close to the temple as you're going to get is an old retaining wall that happened to me. So they are so still to this day, guys, to this day, fascinated with the building that used to be on there that 2,000 years later, they will pray and lay themselves. Go to the next one. 
lay themselves up against the retaining wall that used to hold the temple that they love so very much. And then if you'll go to the next one, and they'll slip prayers in the little cracks. Those are all like people will pray. And the, just to, that temple, that's, that was everything for us. And they'd slip prayers in. I've got one more. Because this is me looking quizzically on the whole thing. <laughs> so some of us, you, you may be seeing the thing. We're, we're heading back there next, next spring to be able to go to Israel and Greece. And uh, you have to put the skull cap on. And so you can put it down now. I just, that's me like trying to figure out what was going on there. Um, Here's what Jesus is trying to say with the fig tree and with his authority in general. I want to put it up here. Lesson number one, Jesus is the owner. He holds supreme authority. Okay? Guys, you have to know this. Jesus is conveying something so vital, so foundational to what it means to understand who he is, that Jesus is the owner. It's his. All. This world, not just that temple, this whole world, you, me, this is his vineyard. We're his people. <laughs> and he has supreme authority. What is he looking for as the owner when he comes to inspect his vineyard, when he comes to see how things are going with what is his? He's expecting prayer, relationship, worship, right? Not empty talk, not just leaves with no fruit. Luther even said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. That idea that prayer should be the kind of fruit that is born when we truly know the owner of the vineyard. Okay, let's, let's go to this next little section here, okay? That's the the barren fig tree, then verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Right? Did I say we were going to be talking about authority? They're recognizing. Who do you think you are? By what authority are you coming to us? Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I'll ask you one question. And if you answer it for me, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Did John's baptism come from heaven, or was it of human origin? So they have to get a crowd, you know, huddle together. They discuss among themselves, well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? Yeah, but if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd because everyone considers John to be a prophet. So they came back, and they answered Jesus, ah, oh, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Authority. That's what's on the line. Authority. They get it. The audience there is understanding. He's talking about raw authority. Why does Jesus bring up John's baptism, John the Baptist's baptism? Because that was all about authority. Do you remember in the early part of Matthew when John hits the scene, he's baptizing people, but you know what he's doing when he baptizes them? Calling them out and telling them, hey, you're wrong. You repent. You change, okay? I, I want to read for you back in Matthew chapter 3 about John's baptism. John is crying out, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees, some of the same dudes, now standing in front of Jesus in Matthew 21. And he says to them in verse 7 of, of Matthew 3, 
when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, (laughs) who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. See that? You produce fruit consistent with repentance. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And here he is, back to that metaphor that we were talking about earlier. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. (laughs) Going back to the same metaphor. If you're a fig tree and I don't like you, I can cut you down. I can make you wither, right? Understand what he's saying to the Pharisees, the leaders of of the whole religion. He's saying, you change. I'm calling you out. You don't love God. There's a lot of show. There's a lot of leaves. There's no fruit. You repent, right? You repent, calling them out. Here's the second point that I think we need to embrace as we go through Matthew 21 here. Our nature, guys, our nature is to question and resist Jesus' authority. So first, he holds all authority. Our nature is actually follow the lead of these dudes. <laughs> Don't sit there too accusingly at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But here's what I'm saying. Our nature, not just theirs, this isn't just about them, this is about you and me. Our nature is to question and ultimately resist Jesus' authority. That's what goes on. Who are you to tell us? Who are you to tell me what I can do or can't do? Okay, I want to add another piece. Let's keep going through this passage. Verse 28, Matthew 21, 28. So what do you think? He's still got the same audience, okay? Same group listening to this whole thing. So what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and he said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. Ah, but later he changed his mind and and he went. And the man went to the other son and said the same thing. Oh, I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. So which of the two did his father's will? It was obvious, right? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. John came to you. Okay, back to John. John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors, prostitutes did believe him. But you, when you saw it, you didn't even change your minds then and believe him. Okay, this is where I think we should get stirring in our souls a little bit of hope. Because what a beautiful picture now of this good and loving father. Okay? This isn't just raw, like reckless authority. This is a loving father saying to his son, just think of the, the small family farm. Hey, son, I need you to go work in the field. Right? The first son is just rebellious. He's just honest. He resists. He questions authority. He rejects authority. I don't want to. He's the honest one, right? I don't want to. I don't want to mow the lawn. Right? I don't want to clean up after dinner. I don't, I don't want to do that, right? He's honest. But he turns around. He changes his mind. You guys, that word change his mind is, in the original language that it was written in Greek, the same root word that we get our word repentance from. He repented. He changed his mind. I'm honest. I don't want to do that. 
I know you're a good God. I know you're a loving God. I don't want to do it. Dad, I know you're a good dad. You're, very, you're calling me son. I don't want to do it. All right. You know, changed his mind. When do it. Second son, opposite. Very respectful. Oh, yes, sir. I'll do whatever I'm asked. Right? Total compliant, total lip service. You know, he's got his little soldier shirt on. Whatever. Like, he's dutiful. Dutiful guy. Oh, yes, sir. Whatever has no intention of doing it. It's all a show. It's all leaves with no fruit, right? It's all just a display of obedience. He has no intention, right? Here's what I'm saying. Some of us, we resist Jesus. We don't like Jesus telling us what to do. We get confronted with stuff in the Bible that just kind of makes us mad. The true believer actually stops, recognizes that this is coming from a loving father, and we change our mind, we repent, and we get to be the ones entering the kingdom. Not the religious people with all the wah, 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 nope. It's those who actually look in the mirror, realize, oh, Jesus, what you're saying about me is true. What you're saying about you is true. I've been wrong. I'm stopping. I'm changing my mind. We enter the kingdom. Here's the third truth that I think we find here. True believers, okay, genuine, true believers change their minds and submit to Jesus' loving authority. The thing that distinguishes those two, you can see it right there in the text. One changed his mind, and then Jesus circles back to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he says, you never changed your mind, <laughs> The one changed his mind, repented. You never did. You never, ever changed course. That distinguishes a true believer from an unbeliever. Okay, last section, okay? And then, then we're gonna draw this all together. Verse 33. So listen to another parable. He's still got the same audience in front of him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press, built a watchtower, right? Isaiah 5. Right? Still that same, right? That same kind of analogy pulling through. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. And when the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to, to collect his fruit, right? He owns it. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants like John the Baptist. More even than the first group. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son. He sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, oh, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. Let's take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard, there it is, right? The owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? Well, obvious answer. He's going to completely destroy those terrible men, they told him. They're going to lease his vineyard to other farmers who will actually give him his fruit. <laughs> it's his, his fruit at the harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, <laughs> once again, to these leaders, right? Have you never read the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Okay, who's the you? 
Back to verse 23, the chief priests, elders, religious people. I'm telling you, the kingdom of God, it's coming. It's going to be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls will shatter him. The chief priests, the Pharisees, they heard this prayer. They knew he was talking to them. Although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. Guys, Jesus' audience, the religious guys, the leaf with no fruit guys, are about, within a couple pages, to seize the sun, beat the daylights out of him, throw him out of the vineyard that he owns, out of the house of prayer that is his house. They're going to beat him up, throw him out, and kill him. They're thinking, sweet, we finally are going to silence this crazy guy. We got rid of John. Now we're going to get rid of Jesus. Finally, we won't have to hear this stuff anymore. But as they plot to do that, Jesus calls out Psalm 118. The, the quote there about the stone, the builders rejected. So we're going to close with this. I want to read for you Psalm 118, the, the part that Jesus quotes from. This is incredible, guys. Psalm 118, verse 19, says this. Psalm 118, 19. Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter through them. Kind of temple language. Open the gates. I want to enter in, and I, I, I want to sing and worship the Lord. I want to give thanks to the Lord. This is the Lord's gate. The righteous will enter it. I'll give thanks to you because you've answered me. You've become my salvation. I'm coming in like with singing and rejoicing. Verse 22, shockingly like, and the stone that the builders rejected has actually become the cornerstone. You remember when I was showing you those stones from, from the first temple that got thrown over the wall, right? Those massive you're going to throw the cornerstone out. I'm talking about Jesus. You're going to throw the cornerstone out, thinking, ah, oh, get rid of it. The stone that the builders are going to reject has actually become the cornerstone for something brand new. It's going to be the beginning of something brand new. This came from the Lord. It's wondrous, right? This is the day the Lord has made. We're going to rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118 is talking about the day that Jesus is rejected killed. And this is the day the Lord has made, and we're going to rejoice in it. What? It goes on. Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. You know what that is? That's Hebrew for a word that you're familiar with. Hosanna. That has just happened earlier in chapter 1, 21. Jesus coming into town. Hosanna, Hosanna. That's all Psalm 118 language. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and has given us light. Listen to this. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Who is the sacrificial lamb that's getting bound to the cords of the, by the cords to the altar? Jesus. And with rejoicing, bind the festival sacrifice with cords. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His Faithful love endures forever. Guys, Jesus 
is going to pull a fast one. Even using his rejection, the rejection of him as the start of something brand new. The gates are not just going to be closed to that temple. They're going to be eliminated, wiped off the planet. And he's going to build a whole new people. A people who love him, who change their mind about him and about their ways. Pray to him, worship him. Enough of the old. It hasn't borne fruit. It's still not bearing fruit. Enough. I'm starting something new. And it starts with his sacrifice. The last point that I think we learned from Matthew 21. Guys, you will either be destroyed or eternally rescued when Jesus comes to reclaim his vineyard. Okay? He is coming back. He's the owner of the vineyard. He's going to come back and inspect, is what happening here, what I intended to happen here, and what he's trying to throw down there is, at that point, the owner of the vineyard is going to make a decision, and we're going to keep that theme going now as we ramp up Matthew in these next couple chapters. The choice is yours. You will either be destroyed on that day that he comes back or eternally rescued because he's made a way to bring you into the kingdom, into the kingdom of God. He's going to reclaim his vineyard and you get to be right at the banqueting table if you repent and believe in Jesus the Christ. I love that. Someone to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because he is good. His faithful love endures forever. So what we're going to do, church, what a perfect way to like land the plan on Matthew 21, we're going to have communion together. So if this is your first time to Veritas or your hundredth time to Veritas, uh, we are welcoming you to celebrate the story of Jesus being rejected, beat, ultimately thrown out and killed because what Jesus intended in that was to take your place and my place because here's what's going to happen. We're going to be confronted with our sin, with our need to change our mind. And that's the right place to start. We're going to stand there and be like, yeah, we are guilty. Now what do we do? I, I can't pay my way out of this. N nobody else can step in and take my, what am I going to do? And Jesus says, oh, yeah, that's exactly where I want you to be. That son that starts by saying, I don't want to. And then, okay, but I've been so disobedient to this point. What will I do? And Jesus says, I'm actually going to give my life for you. I'm actually going to be the sacrificial lamb, Psalm 118 language, bound to the altar so that you can be free. I'm going to absorb the penalty you deserve when that owner comes back and sees what you've been up to. You guys are in trouble. I'm in trouble. Jesus is saying, I'm going to step in and take the penalty for you you're going to be ushered in and welcomed in to the banqueting table. The question is, will we have repented and believed the story of Jesus? Communion gives us the opportunity to come back, and when we take that bread, and what we'll do is dip it in the cup and take it if we're a believer. If you're not a believer, don't, guys, don't be, 
empty leaves without any fruit. <laughs> don't go through rituals that don't mean anything at all. Okay, that, please, it's okay. We're glad you're here, but don't. This is for people who are actually in this symbol saying, Jesus, that broken body, that spilled blood, that's my life. That's, that's my forgiveness. I, thank you. It's our moment of worship. So the worship team's going to come up and lead us through that time. But before we do, I just want us to pray together. So will you stand together with me? And let's just, let's pray. Let's pray this out. And I just want to give you a few moments here of reflection. And I want you to ask yourself this question before God. Our eyes are closed. I'm not looking at you. you. This is between you and God, okay? Is it possible that you are leaves with no fruit? And I don't want to keep that in the abstract. If you've been here at Veritas for a while, you've been hearing us just over the last couple of weeks. Jesus taught us what marriage is, for instance. He said it's one man, one woman for life. It's how, how are you thinking about your sexuality, okay? And, and if you're wrong, are you repenting and changing and coming to Jesus and saying, I've been so wrong. Thank you for dying for me, and I want to live a new life. I want to bear fruit. We, we've been confronted with generosity. How, how many of us are, we hear Jesus saying, you should be sacrificially giving back. You should be loosening your white knuckle grip. Be generous. Give back toward God's people. Are you leaves with no fruit? Are you doing that? Are you repenting? Are you changing your mind? Baptism. He, those that believe, be baptized. Are you at that point where you're saying, oh, I know what's right? No. No. Or lining up to lift hands in worship, but having no intention of actually repenting and changing the list could go on the list could go on guys in these moments what is Jesus asking of you he has authority he's the owner this is our moment to say Jesus I am wrong you are right and I'm sorry and I want to bear fruit and for every time I did not bear fruit, every time I was empty and hypocritical and disobedient and resisted your authority, there you have met me with the cross. And I come so in need of grace. And I am so eager to celebrate. This is the day that the Lord has made. And I will rejoice. I'm not going to come head covered in tears. No, rejoicing. You have met me here. Let's worship him. Let's take communion. He is our God and he is our king. Let's celebrate him.